Good morning. This morning's scriptures come um, from selected verses from Numbers 1 through 6. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. The people of Israel shall camp each by their own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. These were the names of the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The Gershonite clans were to camp on the west behind the tabernacle. The Kohathite clans were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle. The leader of the families of the Merarite clans was Zuriel, son of Abihel. They were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp to the east of the tabernacle toward the sunrise in front of the tent of meeting. They were responsible for the care of the sanctuary on behalf of the Israelites. Anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. This is the word of the Lord. Do you ever feel like life is a journey? If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I understand, you know, some of us aren't comfortable doing that. If you're an introvert like me, or if your armpits are a little bit sweaty like me, um, you don't like to raise your hands in public, but if you're up for it, uh, here's what I would suggest. If you never feel like life is a journey, just keep your hand down. But if you feel like that a little bit, put your hand halfway up. And if you feel like that strongly, wait, put your hand all the way up, okay? Now, don't do it yet. I'm just giving the instructions. You guys are way, you're very eager this morning. Okay, show of hands, do you ever feel like life is a journey? Wow, okay, a lot of hands all the way up. Um, now let me ask you another question, and again, same thing, if you feel, if you never feel this way, hands down, but if a little bit, halfway up, and if you feel this way strongly, put your hand all the way up. Do you ever feel lost on the journey of life? Yeah. This is one of the most powerful human experiences that we go through. Uh, life feels like a journey in which it's easy to feel lost. 
Life feels like a journey in which we often feel lost. And there are different ways of being lost, but the experience, the feelings are often the same. Feeling disoriented, confused, um, anxious, feelings of anger, frustration, discouragement, despair, fear, shame, grief, depression. It's really painful to feel lost like this. So what do we do? Well, a lot of times we focus on trying to get unlost, uh, as we would call it. In other words, we try to focus on maybe we want to change our circumstances, change the people around us, change ourselves. We're going to try harder, pray harder. We're going to get on the right track, find the right path, and really stick with it. And if we could just do all of that, then we would fix our problems and we wouldn't feel so lost. We would get unlost. But what if there's something more important and more life-changing than simply getting unlost, as we would define it. What if it's in those times of feeling lost in this world that God is doing His deepest work in our lives? And so even though we may feel like we're wandering around in a desert, if we pay attention, let me say that again, if we pay attention, we meet God. What does that look like? The book of Numbers is a great place to find answers. So we're beginning a series today on the book of Numbers. And this morning, we're actually summarizing the first several chapters, which sounds a little foolhardy. But if we summarize it, we get an overview of one of the biggest and most important things that the book of Numbers is showing us that we need on the journey of life. What is it? Well, let's find out by looking at it from three different angles This morning, we're going to see a presence at the center, a voice in the wilderness, and lastly, a blessing from the mediator. A presence at the center, a voice in the wilderness, and a blessing from the mediator, okay? First, there's a presence at the center here. Um, Now, let's begin by getting the backstory. All the way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created this world to be a place of blessing, literally. When God creates the first humans, it says and he blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. When we hear this word blessed, uh, it's easy for us to think in terms of um, prosperity, or blessing is when things are going the way you want them to go. I'm hashtag blessed. But in the Bible, blessing means way more than that. Blessing is, is bringing out the full potential of something. Blessing is when you're becoming everything that God created you to be. Now, the problem is at the very beginning of the Bible, the very first human beings rebelled against God, and as a result, the whole world is falling apart. So in Genesis chapter 12, God is looking at a world that's falling apart, and he decides to call Abraham to become the father of the nation of Israel. Why? What's Israel's purpose in the world? The purpose of Israel was to bring God's blessings back into a world that's falling apart. So in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham three big things. He says, I'm going to make you a great people. Second, he says, I am going to lead you to a land. And thirdly, he says, through you, I am going to bring my blessing to all the other nations of the world. That may be the most important part, and we'll talk more about that next week. But these are God's three big promises to Abraham, people, land, and blessing. Now, At the beginning of the next book, Exodus, it looks like God's promises are starting to come true. It says that the Israelites were fruitful, they were multiplying, but then they fell into slavery in Egypt. 
And so God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai, God comes down on the mountain, and he says, build me a tent. It's called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place of God's presence dwelling among the people. So here we are at the very beginning of the book of Numbers, and the Israelites have just put the tabernacle together for the first time. They're getting ready to begin their journey to the land that God promised Abraham. But here's where things get a little weird. In the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers, nothing's happening chronologically. When we think of a story, we usually think a chronological sequence of events, like once upon a time there was a guy named Joe. One day Joe went on a journey, then something else happened, then something else, then something else, until finally Joe reached his destination and he was a transformed person. A story is a chronological sequence of events, but in the first 10 chapters of Numbers, nothing is happening chronologically. It's jumping all over the place. What's going on? The answer is, it's still telling a story, it's, but it's not so much a sequence of events as it is a picture, a picture of the way the Israelite camp was organized. So let's take a look. At the, in chapter 2, it says this, God says, the people of Israel shall camp, each by their own standard, with their banners, that's the flags of their father's houses. So um, this is describing the way the Israelite camp was supposed to be organized. So here's a diagram. Um, there are three tribes camped on the east, three on the south, three on the west, and three on the north. Next, God gives instructions for another ring, a smaller ring of camps that are supposed to be here closer to the center. Those uh, come from the tribe of Levi, which is the priests. Um, and hang with me for just a little bit more here, okay? So it continues on in chapter 3. It says, the Gershonite clans were to camp on the west, the Kohathite clans on the south, the Merarite clans on the north. Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp to the east. So if we go back to our diagram, the 12 tribes are in the outer perimeter of the camp. The priestly tribes are in the inner ring of the camp, but what do you think is at the center? The tabernacle, that's right. Everything in the camp is organized and centered around the presence of God. Friends, here's the point. What do we need more than anything else on the journey of life? The most important thing is for your camp that's everything in your life, your work, your home, your family, your relationships, your time, your money, even your hobbies, for everything in your life to be centered on the presence of God. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live in a camp like this? Everything in your life is built, literally built, around the presence of God. So if you live in the camp of Asher, and you want to go visit a buddy over here in the camp of Reuben. You can't just walk through the middle of the camp. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. No, you have to walk all the way around the presence of God just to go visit a friend. The presence of God literally is the center of everything in your life. So here's the question. What's at the center of your life? Friends, we're talking about spiritual formation here. That, that means the way your life is structured, the way your camp is organized. Even if you don't think of yourself as a very organized person, I'm not. And yet you have habits and patterns and structures in your life. We all do. 
So, and all of that is shaping you, informing you into a very specific kind of person. And because human beings are spiritual beings, that means that you are always, always being spiritually formed by whatever is at the center of your camp and the way you have organized your entire life around it. Because everything, and I mean everything in your life is centered on something. What is it? I mean, if you think about your life, and we put different things in the boxes here, but think about the things that might be on the perimeter of your life, like movies or sports or gaming or social media or whatever it be, might be. Then think about things that might be closer to the center of your life, like family or friends or work or self-care. What is at the center of your life? Uh, And what happens if we take things that should be on the outside and we put them in the center? Do you know what's at the center of your life, what your whole life is organized around? Be careful how you answer. One way to find out might be to ask people who know you really well and ask them, hey, what would you say is at the center of my life? A lot of times we might be surprised but we, because we can often be blind to what's really at the center of our life. And we might have things in our life and we might say, oh, you know, I, God, God's in my camp. It's easy to have God as one of the boxes in the camp, you know, that's the church box. We put God in the church box. I go to church. God is in the church box. It's easy to have God in your camp, but not at the center of the camp. I know that's true for me a lot of the times. Friends, why do we feel lost so many times? Listen, I want to be careful and gentle and respectful here. Life is hard, and life will hit you really hard sometimes. That doesn't always mean that you did something wrong, but a lot of the time, One of the big reasons that we feel so lost in this world is because something other than God is at the center of our camp. And whenever something goes wrong with that center, everything else in our life falls apart. One of the big things the book of Numbers is showing us in the first several chapters is that we need the presence of God at the center of our life in order to help us through the wilderness when we feel lost. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen a presence at the center. We're looking at this picture of the camp. But secondly, we see there's a voice in the wilderness. Um, Because here's the big question. Why is it that other things become the center of our lives? And why is this so important? If we go all the way back to the very beginning of the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1 says this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Now, what's the wilderness? For the Israelites, it was a literal wilderness, but wilderness is also an image for the Christian life. For instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is describing the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, and he says, these things were written down as an example for us. I mean, think about it. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, but God rescued them out of slavery, and then he's leading them to the promised land of blessing. But in between the rescue and the blessing is a wilderness. That is an incredibly powerful image for the Christian life, because when God rescues us out of slavery, out of bondage, when God rescues us, he doesn't immediately transport us to what the book of Revelation would call the new heavens and the new earth. It's not like, beam me up, Scotty. No. We still live in a world that is dominated by evil, suffering, sickness, sin, and death. Life is a wilderness. And in a wilderness, it's easy to get lost 
And especially, a wilderness is a place where all the things you used to rely on, all your old centers get stripped away so that you're forced to rely on God's presence in your life, at least hopefully, because it's not guaranteed that we'll do that. So if we go back to the beginning of this verse, notice it says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. That phrase, the Lord spoke, occurs over and over and over and over again in the book of Numbers. It's all over the place. Why? Think about this with me. You know, here are the Israelites. Um, At this point in the story, they've been free for about a year. Up until a year ago, what was the dominating voice in their life? Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Their whole life was dominated by, and Pharaoh spoke. To be a slave in Egypt is to have Pharaoh's voice as the authoritative voice in your life. So when they come out of Egypt, they have to learn how to live their life under the authority of God's voice, God's word. That's what's going on with them. Now, here's why this is so important. Every single one of us has a voice of authority in our life. The the question is not whether you will have some voice as an authoritative voice in your life. The question is, which voice will it be? Every single one of us has voices of authority that, um, that we have in our lives. Now, here's what I mean. In our culture, there are all kinds of various narratives or stories that tell us, here's what life is all about, or here's what the good life looks like. So, for instance, one of the most powerful, maybe the most influential narrative in our culture is what we could call the individual freedom narrative. That narrative says everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. We just take that for granted because that's a very powerful narrative that has authority in our lives because we live in this culture. And at the heart of this narrative is the idea of individual dignity which is an important idea. That's a good idea. We should hang on to that. And by the way, the idea of individual dignity comes to us from the Bible. Luc Ferry is a French, best-selling French philosopher. He wrote a book some years ago called A Brief History of Thought. He's an atheist. He's not a Christian. And yet he's also very honest about the impact that Christianity has had in our world. Here's what he says in the book. By resting its case upon a definition of the human person and an unprecedented unprecedented idea of love, Christianity was to have an incalculable effect upon the history of ideas. To give one example, he says, it is quite clear that in this Christian reevaluation of the human person, of the individual as such, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. The reason we believe in human rights is because Christianity taught us to That's what this atheist philosopher is saying. Friends, individual dignity comes to us from the Bible. But in our culture, we don't just honor the individual, we worship the individual. The narrative of individual freedom is a voice of authority in our lives. So even if you say, no, 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 the only voice of authority in my life is my own voice. Do you see? The only reason you believe that is because the narrative of individual freedom told you to believe that. This is a powerful narrative in our culture. Another powerful narrative in our culture is the narrative of consumerism. Consumerism as a narrative says that you uh, are at the center and that 
only you can decide what's best for you, what works for you, and that the only way you can figure that out is by listening to your desires and, and your feelings. So think about, um, about all the things that are for sale in our culture. I want to suggest that the number one product for sale in our culture is identity. If you, uh, most of the products that are marketed to us, whether it's clothing or cars or dog shampoo, whatever it might be, that they are marketed to us largely on the basis of helping us cultivate our own personal brand. And that includes faith and spirituality, by the way. Tara Isabella Burton is an um, expert on modern American spirituality. She wrote a book a few years ago called Strange Rights. Um, the main idea in this book is that people today are not abandoning religion. People are not abandoning religion. They're remixing it. She calls them the remixed. And here's what she says about them. Shaped by the twin forces of the internet and consumer capitalism, today's remixed don't want to receive doctrine. They want to choose the spiritual path that feels more authentic, more meaningful. Consumer capitalist culture offers us not merely necessities, but identities. Meaning, purpose, community, and ritual can all be purchased on Amazon Prime. Now, here's the point. There's no such thing as not having some voice of authority in our life. The question is not whether you're going to have a voice of authority, but which voice is it? Is it God, or is it some other voice of authority? Um, our individualistic, consumeristic culture is geared to train each and every one of us to believe that the most important project in our life is not spiritual formation, but identity formation. Identity formation has supplanted, it's taken the place that has become our great formation project in our modern world. And, and faith and spirituality can be a part of that. How do we say it? Hey, if it works for you, that's great. But if not, that's okay too. It's a, it's a consumer option in our lives because the dominating narrative in our culture, according to our culture, the most important project is that you will discover your own authentic identity and then express that to the world around you because in, in our culture, self is at the center of everything. Friends, that is the voice of Pharaoh. It will enslave you, it will drive you, and ultimately it will crush you. How do we get free? How do we get the presence of God back into the center to help us through the wilderness so that we don't feel so lost in life? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen a presence at the center. We've seen a voice in the wilderness. But lastly, we need to look at a blessing from the mediator. What does that mean? Uh, you know, when we were reading the passage, some of you may have noticed that there are some kind of alarming verses in this passage. For instance, in chapter 3, it says this, that they, that's the priests, shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. This is saying that the priests, their, their job is to guard the tabernacle and to guard the people. What does that mean? A little further in chapter 3, it gets even more alarming. It's talking about Moses and his brother Aaron, who is the chief priest. And it says this. It says, they were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. That's the tabernacle. Anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. Whoa. What is going on here? Here's what's going on. This is showing us that God is holy. God is holy. We don't usually think of God like that. But God is 
pure goodness, pure light, pure beauty, pure righteousness, pure justice. We, on the other hand, are not. (laughs) We put other things in the center, and we worship. We center our lives around those things, and as a result, we are not pure. We're split in two or three or twenty. Now, as a result, for us to come into the presence of the holiness of God is radically dangerous for us. It's like getting too close to the sun. If you get too close, it'll just incinerate you. That's what this is talking about. So, as a result, do you realize what this means for us? You know, in our culture, we tend to emphasize that God is love, which is good. That's right. That's true. That also comes to us from the Bible, this whole idea that God is love. I mean, even in the Old Testament, it says over and over, God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. The New Testament says God is love. This idea comes to us from the Bible. And yet, in our culture, we have a tendency to kind of, we don't really think about the holiness of God, but all through the Bible, and especially here in the book of Numbers, it's telling us about the holiness of God, about the strange, wild, blinding otherness of God. We don't really think about that. Uh, For instance, Annie Dillard is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. She said this in one of her books. Um, She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats to church. She says, we should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. If we really knew what kind of God we were worshiping, man, we'd be wearing crash helmets and life preservers. We rightly emphasize a God who is love, but we don't really think much about this God who is holy. For us to come into the presence of the holiness of God is radically dangerous unless we have a mediator. That's the priest. A priest is a mediator, somebody who goes into the presence of God on our behalf, and when they go in, they don't go empty-handed. They come and they bring an offering, a sacrifice. It's an ox or a lamb or a goat or something that is going to pay the penalty for us for all the ways that we've worshiped and, and put something other than God at the center of our lives. How can God do that? I mean, especially, how can a little animal, like a a lamb or a goat, really be a sufficient sacrifice for us and our rebellion and worshiping uh, something other than God at the center of our life? The answer is they can't. Those animals and Aaron, the priest, all of that, the tabernacle, all of that is simply pointing to the true and ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, who's also the true and ultimate mediator, ultimate mediator in the true and ultimate tabernacle. You know, at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, it's talking about Jesus. And and the Gospel of John, by the way, is full of tabernacle themes and imagery. It's one of the main themes in the Gospel of John. It says at the very beginning that Jesus is the Word of God and that the Word is God. So Jesus, the Word of God, is God. But then in verse 14, it says one of the most stunning things in the history of the world. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, among us. This is saying Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the center because Jesus is everything. But on the cross, Jesus was lost. Jesus perished in the ultimate wilderness of the cross. 
and lost the shining face of God so that we could have the, the face of God the Father shining on us and pouring out true blessing, true identity on us, not because we center on self, because now we are centering on God. It's true blessing, true identity. And you know what happens when that happens? At the very end of um, uh, the book of Numbers, it has this very famous part where it, it gives this blessing. Um, I'm going to ask Matt to go back to that. But at the very end, it's saying, what happens when the whole camp is organized? What happens when the sacrifices are offered all the way they should be? It says, God says to Moses, tell Aaron, he's the chief priest and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. What, what is the blessing? It's, a, it's a, one of the most famous blessings in the whole Bible. Uh, it says this, um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now, this word keep, it's the same word earlier we saw it was the word guard. You know, the priest's job is to guard us from the tabernacle, to literally guard us from God. But here it's saying that when the sac- once the sacrifice has been offered, now instead of us needing to be guarded against God, now it says, wait, God is now guarding us. And you notice how many times it talks about the face of God in this passage, that once the holiness that was too dangerous for us to come into the presence of, now the holiness, the face of God, instead of, of, of threatening us, it can be shining on us and pouring out the true love, the true blessing, the true identity. Friends, there is no blessing, no identity greater than having the blessing of God rest upon us. So Matt, if we could go to the very end of chapter 6 in Numbers It says, what happens when that blessing comes upon us? God says, so they, the priests, will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. When you receive the blessing of God, that puts a new name on you, a new identity on you. And so in the Gospel of John, again, in the same passage, it tells us that that's exactly what happened when Jesus came and perished on the cross for us says this, that to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, to get a new identity. Child of God is to get a new name, because when you get this new identity in Jesus, His name is written on you. Do you know what it's like, what that means for us to be called by His name? If you've ever watched all the Toy Story movies all the way through at once, one of the things you notice is, is that there's a theme in those movies. In every one of those movies, one or more of the toys gets lost. And whenever a toy gets lost, the toy is always tempted to give up and despair. But in every one of those movies, how do the toys find their way back home? And for instance, in, the, in Toy Story 1, when Buzz Lightyear shows up, he's the new toy on the block, and he comes fresh out of the box and he doesn't realize that he's not a real space ranger. Buzz Lightyear thinks. Uh, he doesn't realize he's a toy. He thinks he's a real space ranger. But then he and Woody, he's the cowboy and he's the leader of the toys. Woody and Buzz get lost and they get captured and fall prisoner in the house of Sid, the mean kid who lives next door, who likes to blow up toys. And while they're in the house, Buzz happens to find out that he's actually not a space ranger at all. He finds out that he's just a toy, and so he gives up in despair. He's going to let Sid blow him up. So there they are. They're captured, Woody and Buzz, and Woody calls out to Buzz, Buzz, I need your help. And Buzz says, I can't help you. You were right about me all along. 
I'm, I'm not a real space ranger. And then he looks at his wrist where it's stamped, made in Taiwan. And he says, I'm just a toy, a stupid little insignificant toy. And Woody says, whoa, wait, hold on just a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest, and it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you are a toy. You are his toy. And this time, instead of looking at the stamp on his arm that says made in Taiwan, Buzz lifts up his foot, and he looks on the bottom of his boot. And you remember what's written there? Andy, in childhood scrawl with the N flipped backwards, he sees the name written on him. And when he sees that name, that's all he needs to rise up, rescue Woody, and lead them both safely back home. Friends, every time a toy gets lost, every time a toy is tempted to give up, every time a toy is tempted to despair, every single time the thing that gets them home safely is the realization that their whole purpose in life is to bring joy to the one whose name is written on them. Do you know the blessing and the joy that comes from having the name of Jesus written on you? The name of Jesus overrides every other name, and a lot of us have a lot of other names that we call ourselves not good names. Friends, the book of Numbers, one of the main things it's showing us is that true blessing, true identity, true life comes, begins with and is centered on the presence of God, which is at the center of everything. True blessing, true identity, true life is at the presence of God, which is at the center of everything. Your life, your camp is always being formed by something. So on the outside of this presence, whatever's at the center, you're always being formed by something. There's always presence and formation in every single one of our lives. Presence and formation, which means that your life, there's always some voice of, that has authority in your life, and that you are always being spiritually formed by whatever's at the center of your life. What presence is at the center of your life? And what voice of authority is forming you around that center. It's easy for us to think, oh, you know, there are parts of the Bible that have authority over my life, but then other parts that I, you know, I just can't accept that. What that means is that there's some other voice that has ultimate authority in your life. Do you know what that voice is? Friends, the more God's Word forms you, the more God's presence comes into the center of your life and transforms everything. It transforms you. That doesn't mean that you will never feel lost. It does mean that God will never abandon you on the journey of life because his name is written on you. Let's pray. Abba, we praise you this morning for your blessings. We don't have any idea what that really is, but I pray, Father, more and more for all of us that, that you would help us to bring you more and more into the center of our life, to allow your voice to form us and shape us, to spiritually uh, transform us around your presence. Father, I pray that you will help us to continue to bring your presence back into the center of our life so that you would not just be one part of our camp, but the center of our camp, and that you would be at the center of this church, Lord Jesus, that we may know the true blessing, the true identity that comes from having your name written on us, and that you would help us to understand, to learn, to discern, maybe to process this week what is 
uh, what are the other centers that we are tempted to take into uh, the presence, into the center of our camp? And Father, I pray that you would help us to, to see truth and light this week, that we would be able to bring you back to the center. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends.